Hey, oh, happy Thursday morning. I just wanted to, it actually is Thursday morning, number one. <laughs> number two, I wanted to jump out in front of the intro music just to let you know this episode is going to be a little bit different. It turned out to be a long form interview, which is something, frankly, I'm not that motivated to do that often. But when it came to Stuart, the founder of Travel Fish, which is one of the most respected websites on Southeast Asian travel, I just had so many questions I wanted to ask him. There's a few people in the world that know more about travel in the region than Stuart. And we focused a lot on that, on expat living, on travel. Towards the end of the conversation, we get into how he turned Travel Fish into a business that employs writers throughout the region. So things we'll touch on, it's a long show, but we'll touch on raising kids in Southeast Asia, Stuart's favorite travel itineraries. If you're coming to Southeast Asia for a month or less, the full moon party. We'll talk about you know the best temples, foods, and visas in the region, some of the best places to live, and some of the recommended reading that Stuart has. So this was a really fun one for me. I hope you enjoy it too. The show notes are at tropicalmba.com slash travelfish. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. In 2008, I moved to Vietnam, and it's the first time that I'm an expat. Mm -hmm. And I lose my funding from the guy who sent me over here to like check out tin mines or whatever. Right. And I think, like every other expat, I'm going to write a travel guide because the lonely planet sucks. Yeah. It doesn't know the cool places and all this. And so sure enough, like me and two other friends would go out and write this travel guide. It's called the Inside Guide to Vietnam. I put it up on a site. I'm reading the Kool-Aid about info products and all this kind of shit. I put a $30 price tag on it, and we got a sale the first day, and only one sale. I've only <laughs> sold one info product, and it was to this guy named McDonald. <laughs> I Googled you, and I was like, already lacked confidence in the project. <laughs> and then it was like, this guy's the competition. He bought my shit the first day. I'm out of business. Like I, I literally went out of business after you supported it. So... <laughs> Well, I'm glad that worked out well for you. <laughs> so that's my origin and death story. I'd like to hear your origin story. Okay. Well, it's quite similar, actually, because the first time it also for us started in Vietnam. I went to Vietnam in the early 90s. It really only just opened up a couple of years previous to that. And we had a lonely planet at the time. It just wasn't very good. I mean, knowing what I know now, I understand why it wasn't very good. But right. then I had no idea, you know, it was like, this book is garbage, you know. And so the Canadian guy that I was traveling with and myself, we just decided to hitchhike the country and write our own. And so we hitchhiked nearly all of Vietnam. When I got back to Australia, I taught myself how to use PageMaker and how to use Corel Draw. We had these hand-drawn maps. I've still got the original notebook upstairs with these maps and everything. And we put together a, a chapter and, and gave it to a distributor in Sydney. And he got back to us like almost straight away and said, when can you get the book to me? And we were like, wow. You know, we had no idea about publishing or anything. And that's how I started doing guidebooks. So we did. This sounds similar to the Lonely Planet well, story. I mean, what was similar, your attitude? Like, did you know why the Lonely Planet sucked? Like, was it for a different demographic, or did you have a different perspective? 
No, it was just wasn't very good. This is so long ago now, I can't actually remember why it was, was disappointing. It wasn't really their fault at the time. I mean, to have researched this book at the time would have been a really difficult job because Vietnam really had only just reopened. We put our own one together and that rolled on for a while and then we did a Thailand book subsequent to that. Now, did you make any <clears throat> money at this time? I mean, this preceded Travel Fish. This, this is Stuart MacDonald. This is Stuart MacDonald and Daniel Corrales and Tim Bunnell. It was like just we're traveling friends, you know. Wow. But we had no experience in publishing, no experience in writing, no experience in anything. I was packing shelves in a supermarket at the time, you know. But we thought we knew what travellers wanted, you know. Like anyone who writes a travel guide, you're sort of doing it through your own eyes. And so, yeah, we sold some, but not a lot. And then I met Sam. It was funny, I met Sam at the Travel Writers Workshop in Sydney. Everybody was asked to bring along something that they had written previously. And all I had written were these guidebooks. I mean, I hadn't done any magazine writing or I'm not a writer, you know. So I brought this Vietnam book along. Everybody else had like magazine cuttings or newspaper stories <laughs> or whatever. And so it turned out that Sam had used my guidebook when she went to Vietnam and she couldn't believe that something that was so badly edited could ever get published, you know. <laughs> so it was love at first sight. Then we came back up here ostensibly to do a book on Laos, which was sort of, again, an emerging destination that nobody was going to. Then the currency collapsed and we doubled our travel savings and so then decided to just stick around in the region. And that was in 97. So we did all sorts, worked at the embassy, at newspapers, whatever, in Bangkok. We just started doing travel fish. You know, my job at the embassy, there was a website portion to the job. And then when I moved to Nation Group, which is one of the Thai newspaper groups, we actually moved to Phnom Penh, but I kept my job at the paper. It was a very unusual situation. So I was able to use my know-how from writing the guidebooks way back when and the web programming to pull it together and say, well, let's make a travel website. And so when was the date around where it became a feasible business to, to pay for the rent? It went live in early 2004. We officially launched it on July 12, 2004. We weren't making any money at all for the first year or so. There was no business plan. There was no idea of how we were going to make money. I didn't want to go back to a newspaper. I didn't want to work in an office again. I didn't really want to work with other people again. I just enjoyed doing this kind of thing, you know, like telling other people... Maybe not go to that island, go to this island, don't go to that beach, try this beach, that kind Did of thing. Did your early guides have that kind of opinionated thing? Because they must have been really thin, right? I mean, if you go to Sapa, you can only stay in one or two guest uh, houses, right? Or did you walk around and look at the rooms? We, we at... looked at everything. Like, this is the core thing that we did from right at the beginning with the books, which has really informed everything I've done, is that if you haven't been there, you haven't been there. That's it. You have these whole travel industries that are built on like desk research and internet research and all that kind of stuff. It's all bullshit. If you haven't been to the place yourself, I don't think you're qualified or in a position to tell somebody else that they should go there. To put it into perspective now, how many pieces of content are you serving to the search engines right now? We have about six and a half thousand guest house and hotel reviews. I've personally reviewed probably 3,000 of those. We cover about 650 destinations across seven countries. In the wires, there's about 350 feature stories and probably two or 3,000 wire stories. And then the forums. The forums. The forums, like 100,000 something or others. Something like that. So a lot of content. And some of it 
was updated like yesterday and some of it is quite out of date but that's sort of the nature of the game anything you ride is out of date the moment you walk out of the restaurant southeast asia has turned into kind of a bastion for the macbook jockeys yeah so to speak and a couple places have emerged in at least in my reading community as places that are uniquely suited for that lifestyle chiang mai ho chi minh city bangkok and maybe a small handful of others. I would be curious to see like what you would identify as like the up and coming locations in Southeast Asia, the places that might be identified as a hotspot three or five years from now, places that you might select to base your life out of. It's a difficult question, primarily because I've got two kids. So once you've got children, your position is, is dictated to by schooling. If Let's we- talk about that. A lot of my listeners have kids and they're curious about what coming to Southeast Asia, how it might impact their kids' lives. So how old are your kids? Six and seven. They both go to a Montessori school just around the corner from here, which we're very happy with. Like, it's, it's a perfect school. Whether you're living here or in Thailand, Malaysia, whatever, school is disproportionately expensive compared to your other costs. So it costs us about twice as much to educate the kids as it does to pay for rent for a year. So to give an example, of, to send one child to a good school in Bali, it might cost something like... We're paying about just under $10,000 per child. Significant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. And that's not the high end. I mean, there's, there's more expensive schools here. You can pay somewhat less. I'm pretty sure as a foreigner, you can't put your kids into the local system. So you sort of a little bit over the barrel. I mean, it's the same in Bangkok if you want to go into an international school. It's a significant amount of money. In general, I've noticed that these are kind of your kids are kind of running with the elites, which do you feel like that's... Not really. I mean, it depends on the school. I mean, in the case of our kids, it's a mix. You've got there's some international kids there, some from mixed parentage, some Balinese kids, some Indonesian kids. You know, it's a mix. I wouldn't categorize it as a elitist kind of thing. It's not like green school or some of the big schools in Jakarta or Bangkok or something like that. Okay. I mean, that was my experience. I went to an international school for a couple of years when I was in Italy. And when you're the, the kid in the school, it's just Federico or whoever. It's like <laughs> someone who you're playing with. And you go back 10 years later and she's living in a castle. You know? It's like, <laughs> I didn't notice that. You know? Well, what would be some good places here in the region then for families? What other places might you select? Well, we're very happy in Bali. I think Bali's a, a good sort of compromise in many ways. It's, it's not perfect. But we decided, we, we were previously, we've lived in Bangkok and Phnom Penh and Jakarta before living here. And we definitely don't want to go back to a big city. But the, the cities are where the, the schools are, you know, so it becomes a trade-off. I'd happily go and live on Kopangan or some, something like that in Thailand. But schooling is a problem. Like, unless you're going to homeschool the kids or something like that, you get quite limited. I can't really speak for a lot of other places, really. I, I would assume there's good schools in Chiang Mai. Anywhere that has a Phuket, Samui, mm-hmm. anywhere where there's a sizable number of expats, then there'll be some kind of school catering to them. It'll cost you. This sweeping sound, by the way, yeah. is like the mascot theme of this podcast. <laughs> like it always makes its way onto the show. There's always sweeping. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote an article recently about Bali isn't a shithole, basically. It's yeah. not the shithole that you think it is. Yeah. And I've noticed that a lot of people, they kind of buzz through Bali and they get a bad taste in their mouth. There's this weird dichotomy. Like a lot of people come here and they're like, oh, there's touts and there's pollution, I'm out. Hmm. And then there's this small group of people, like 15, 20% that are like, 
it was almost a spiritual experience to come yeah. to Bali and now I'm addicted to the place. Yeah. What's your perspective on that? Why does that happen? Well, people are lazy. We've been in Asia since 97 and we never even considered coming to Bali until we were living in Jakarta. And Jakarta, I really didn't take to. And so we would come down here occasionally for weekends and stuff like that. We didn't even consider coming here because it had such a bad reputation for trashy Australian tourism. And I was like, why would I want to go there when I can go and hang out in Thailand or whatever and not have to deal with ugly Australian tourists or something like that? But then our house got flooded out in Jakarta and so we had to, we decided to leave and come down here for a longer stretch. I had a better look around. And so the previous times when we come here for a weekend, it was like, meh, you know. It wasn't long after the Bali bombings. It was nowhere near as booming as it was now. The beaches were average, the hotels were kind of nice, but there wasn't anything really much to it, you know. And you read this copy of these glowing rice fields and everything, it's like, man, I've seen rice for 20 years, you know. <laughs> but then when we came down after the flooding, we had a longer stint here and we, and we went west. And I just, I'll never forget it, we drove over a rise out near Tabanan and it was just laid out like this, this blanket. And it was like, wow, this is what we're really talking about. It was on that trip that we decided to relocate here and to, like, Travel Fish had got enough momentum at that stage that Sam, who was working as a journalist at the time, thought she'd take a sabbatical and we'd see if the business could support us both while we grew it. And that was seven years ago. A lot of people that come here, they're going up to Ubud. You mentioned something that I'd sort of shared is that it doesn't resonate with me as yeah. much as it seems to with a lot of expats. What's the reason for that? I just don't get the appeal of Ubud. I, I never have. Bali is a really easy place to hate. If you're lazy, if you come here and you spend your time in Ubud and Kuta and you waste half your life at the bloody airport, then it's really easy to go away and write a post saying Bali's a dump. Yeah. But it's not. I mean, yeah, parts of it, like anywhere, there's places that you just don't want to go back to. But there's far more to it than that. The longer we stay here, what we say is Bali is somewhere you have to earn. You have to make the effort to get away from some of the tourist traps. I mean, some people love Ubud. You know, it's just, it just doesn't do it for me. There's other beaches. You go down the south onto the Bukit. You go out west. There's heaps of beauty here. The culture is amazingly strong and resilient. I just don't think there's anywhere like it. And it sounds like a complete cliche, <laughs> but there is something special about here you know i still can't put my finger on what it is yeah i mean the traffic sucks the beaches can be dirty when the season's wrong and that kind of thing it's a growing destination you know there's an experience i had i think it was in 2012 or 2011 i was in famulao walking down the street in saigon mm -hmm. and comparing it with three or four years beforehand when I had been there. Right. And I was blown away by how much change and like to see development happen, to see, I kind of, as a Westerner, I had this idea that like if things get developed, they get shittier. Right. And I was amazed to see that like the streets were cleaner and that it was more organized and some of the lines had gone underneath the road and this and that. And I'm curious, like sometimes when I go back to my hometown, Cowpatch, things have not changed as much. I'm curious to, to ask you like, what you feel like's changed over your 15 year course here. I mean, the pace of change is radical. And like, what has been the most significant changes that stick out in terms of your lifestyle? Well, I mean, everywhere, I think the whole way people have traveled has changed. That's affected a lot of things. I mean, like, okay, I'm just back from three weeks on Kopangan in Thailand. 
And as I was saying earlier, I used to spend a lot of very unproductive time on that island doing nothing. And you could rent on the beach we used to stay at. There were only two places to stay. This is in the early 90s, and you could get a beach hut for 60 baht. I mean, it was a shared bathroom and everything, but the beach was literally... That's $2. Two less dollars, than $2. Two, less than $2 for a beachfront shack, and the beach was literally five metres away, right? Now, in that exact same spot, you can pay 28,000 baht for a private pool villa. Okay, so that's in 20 years. So on one hand, like that entire bay was owned by two families, and so both families just sublet out the whole lot. And I found out on this trip that one of the families has now moved to Suratani because his kids are growing up. He wants them to go to a better school, all that kind of thing. But his original resort is still running. It's, it's not 60 baht anymore, 800. But that's the kind of change that you're seeing there. And it's a completely different style person that goes there and wants to spend $1,000 a night or $800 a night or whatever it is. So in the 90s, the I mean, it was a legitimate adventurer that would go to a place like that. Maybe not quite adventurer, but... At that stage, in the early 90s, Cambodia was pretty much off limits. Vietnam had only just opened. Laos was... The visa was $100, and that got you in for seven days. Burma was... No one was really going there with the politics and the fighting and everything. So people would come out here for three months, and you would spend those three months in Thailand because there wasn't really anywhere else that was easy to go to. And so there were a whole lot of second-tier destinations that were really great places to go in Thailand. In the northeast, like Tapanom and Sangkom and Chiang Khan, places like that along the Mekong, they were great places and the islands. But now, no one goes to these places anymore because in three months they're doing Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, all in the one trip because it's all like interconnected, all the border crossings are open. I mean, anybody could travel through here. It's really simple. So people are covering a lot more miles in the same amount of time and they're spending far less time in each place, you know. So if you're only spending two nights on a beach, it doesn't really matter if you're paying $20 instead of $2. But if you previously were going to that beach for a month, then that matters a lot. You know what I mean? Yes. So I think the whole, I don't know, you should have always been here yesterday kind of thing, you know, yeah. like friends who have travelled through in the 80s, friend who used to go to Samui on a coconut boat in the 70s from Phnom Penh. <laughs> She always won these kind of conversations, you know. It's just how it goes. It's all changing. Now in Bali, you've got all these cookie-cutter hotels going up that are really being built for all the wrong reasons, is a a sensitive way of putting it. And they're completely screwing the old family-run businesses here. These places aren't catering to guests who are looking for a personal connection with the hosts. They're looking for a cubicle with a flat-screen TV with white linen, black headboard, and good Wi-Fi. <laughs> and that's what they want, you know? And when you're popping down here for a weekend from KL or Singapore or coming up from Perth or something like that, that's all you want. You know, the room and the experience that used to come with these old-school places is irrelevant when you're only here for a couple of days. Do you know what I mean? One of the things that's changed for me, so the first time I came to Southeast Asia was in 2001. Mm-hmm. And I was influenced... Or I saw the movie The Beach. Mm-hmm. That captured some kind of zeitgeist or some kind of truth, at least in the way that people thought about their trip to Southeast Asia. Because you mentioned about the travelers who would come here for three months. I mean, you would shut off your old life when you would come here. I mean, it was mm. this kind of transitional experience. I'm just curious to think, of course, the script has totally changed nowadays, but... 
Do you think that that movie, which is influential for me, caught anything accurate about the zeitgeist in Thailand at the time? Or do you think it was just a good book? <laughs> I think the, the book was definitely better than the movie. Yeah, I think it did tap into something. A lot of the people that... I don't know whether it's I'm older now or I just talk to more people then. I don't know. But I seem to remember meeting more interesting people when I was traveling then. It was a lot more people who were traveling long term. And I think the beach was about people who were traveling long term. Whether I guess you're traveling long term now, you've got a MacBook. You know, I mean, when you're taking a long trip, like my long trip was two years away. I mean, the stint of that in London, but most of it was traveling. You were just opting out of the whole system. I mean, obviously, you're privileged in that you've been able to put that money aside. So you're able to say, I don't want to be a part of this system anymore. So that straight away puts you in a bit of a position of privilege. But still, I think it's a really attractive idea. People sort of say, this is what I really want to do. The beach did a really good job of creating an image of that dreamland you know but in the end of that they all try to kill each other you know <laughs> and i mean that's easy to see too you know i'm just at the full moon party i mean it's easy to see <laughs> see that there's an element of the movie that there's a couple things there's the opt-out script which if you were to say like what's the cutting edge opt-out script now it might kind of be the opposite it might be actually building a business while you go to yeah. Hatrin. but in terms of the romanticism of like finding that place the, the cool beach in thailand where no one has found are there spots in Southeast Asia, like a Bagan, or Bagan probably pretty figured out, whatever, but is there places that have that kind of romanticism attached now in traveler lore? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's a myth to think that you have to travel a long way to find these kind of places. I mean, even on, on where I was on Kopangan, I was there for, on the island for three weeks, and two of those weeks I spent on a, a beach that is like 15 minutes by boat from Hadrin. But it is a completely alternative kind of a set and there's a lot of people living there doing really interesting things that could have dropped straight out of the beach. You know, open the book, these guys fall out, you know. <laughs> and I mean, they have created that click. It's what they want, it doesn't appeal to everybody, obviously. But that's on Kopangan, so I mean, you don't have to go far, I don't think, to find these kind of people and people doing interesting stuff. Kopangan's probably the easiest one. You wrote a really nice blog about going back to the full moon party, which is kind of like almost like an ironic thing to do. You know, for me, like you talk shit about going to the full moon party, but I think it's cool that you went. I'm sure our listeners are pretty well informed about that. I'm curious, like if you were to advise like a great party, like what's a great party that people might not know about here in the region? Or what's your idea of a good party? I mean, you mentioned that you went to a week-long fast. Yeah. That to me sounds like a really fun thing to do. But let's say we want to get a little bit naughtier than that. We might want to drink some alcohol. <laughs> what might be a good place? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of good parties in the region, I suppose. Did you have fun at the full moon party? Yeah, I, I actually did. There's a long time between parties and I'll keep it that way, you know. But Was it all 19-year-old no, Scandinavian kids? Or a lot of Scandies from, yeah, very young people, like teenagers, through to very old people. One guy, the guy with the banjo, who I mentioned in the story, he was extremely odd. I mean, he would have been 65, 70, easy, and he was going strong at like 3 o'clock in the morning. It was a very eclectic crowd, from your, your beer monsters and people on buckets to people on everything else. But it was, at times, fabulously beautiful, you know and when we first arrived because we had gone to another beach for the evening and came back to the party quite late and we were on this long tail and we sort of came around the corner 
and it was just I it, saw your photo it yeah. looked like there was a sheen of water that had come up on your lens yeah it was <laughs> just amazing and surreal so surreal and then you get to the beach and there's people dressed up as wild animals and I mean I've been to full moon parties before but this one in particular struck me it was very visual and absurd what do you think of all these television programs that talk about like drug busts in Thailand and the British guys that are drinking beer and, and kind of getting tossed in jail and stuff. Is it a tolerant drug thing going on? At the- there was plenty of drugs. Plenty. Is it, um, but is there an antagonistic relationship uh, with the authorities? Or? Well, when we left Hat Tien, we were told, if you have any drugs with you, don't take them on the boat with you. As you get off the boat, there's a chance you'll be searched for drugs. The entire night, we didn't see any police. They do have undercover people there and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, the mushroom place was still going. I mean, there was people smoking pot everywhere, all that kind of stuff. But the vast majority of the people are boozing. Yeah, I mean, there's buckets and stuff everywhere. Previous ones I've been to have felt much more like cops running around busting people and that kind of thing. Really quite, people were quite paranoid. It didn't have that vibe. But, I mean, there's 10, 15,000 people there, so it's a big party. And maybe something was going on down the other end of the beach, you know. There were a lot of people that were in a different place. And there were a lot of people, particularly later into the evening, who probably needed to go home. But the authorities have done a pretty good job. I mean, they've got, there's like a medical centre and there's a sleep zone. There's plenty of garbage bins and all that kind of stuff. So if you need care, you can get it. And if you don't want to be a pig and throw your stuff in the water, there's bins there and that kind of stuff. There's a really good film that's sort of doing the runs at the moment called Gringo Trails. And it's sort of doing the festival circuit, I think, at the moment. There's this travel content, quality travel site called Outbounding. And so they got a a special screening of it that I was able to watch it a little while ago. What they do in the film is they pick a few different locations. One is in Brazil and another is the full moon party in Hadrin. They're basically saying, look how tourism has completely destroyed these, these destinations. On one hand, that's true. Like, Hadrin, when the party's going, if you don't want a party, you really do not want to be there. <laughs> Absolutely, you do not want to be there. But that's one night a month, and okay, a couple of nights on each side, there'll be parties going and stuff. But when I arrived on Hadrin, like on the shoulder, so two weeks before the full moon party, it was dead, like really dead. I walked from where the Songtao dropped me off down to the boat and barely saw another tourist. We went to the beach one day. There was perhaps 30 people sunbathing on the entire beach. I mean, it's one of those things. And in the same breath, as much as it's a disaster area, it's created you know, enormous affluence and cause, created a lot of jobs and all that kind of stuff, you know. The locals aren't running around saying, get rid of the full moon party. They don't want the airport. They don't care about the party, at least not the people I was speaking to. It's sort of an integral part of Kopangan now. Let's take a version of you that maybe wasn't so adventurous early in your life. Maybe you're in Melbourne, you're a journalist. You have a career break coming up for four weeks. Right. Your more experienced self can identify a four-week itinerary from the end of October into November. I'm curious what you would suggest to yourself. What should you go do in Southeast Asia for four weeks? What's, what's the route that you would take? Can we push it back to November to December? Because <laughs> okay. then the weather's better. I would start somewhere like Bangkok and I'd go straight across the south coast. So from Bangkok across the bottom of Cambodia and then into the bottom of the Mekong Delta. So you can do all of that overland. And then the islands out from Sionikville, there's five five main ones. That's a really happening scene now of uh, yes. some really beautiful beaches. 
and quite an interesting mix of accommodation and stuff. So you can sort of hop across those and then you go over into Vietnam, come through the, the Delta. Nobody travels. Where do you, you go from like Ha Tien? Yeah, you cross at Ha Tien. So then you would you go Sionicville, Campot, Kemp. So yep. Campot, you stop and you go to have ribs at the rusty with, keyhole, and then <laughs> with, the, go, with the peppercorns. Yeah. Oh my God! They're you, once good. you have them, you can't forget That's it. them. Yeah, the peppers. We've still got bags of it here, and then to Kemp just to hang out, then to Hatien, and then you can go down to Phu Quoc, get another bit of island, and then come up through the Delta into to Saigon, and then I, I guess you could keep going. But that's a good stretch. That's in three your four, or four weeks, weeks there. Off the top of my head, yeah, that time of year. I like it. If you go in October, you're going to get too much rain, the seas will be off and that kind of thing. But it gives you a good mix because you get the modern Southeast Asian metropolis with Bangkok and the Thai food. Then you get the, your Cambodian kind of kooky angle, you know, and then you get the delta where nobody goes to. Like, nobody. Nobody. I mean, on Fukuok, sure, but in the actual delta, when I did a motorbike trip through there for a week or so a couple of years ago, we saw nobody. What are some of the highlights? Like, did you go to Canto? What are, what are the we, things that stuck out for you in the Delta? Like, really lazy, nice, clean cities. I yeah, they, they're good. We went all the way to the southern tip. So we got down to Kamau. Raksha? No, it's below that. Like, right, it's the southernmost point of Vietnam. So we got as far as Kamau, and then we got a boat, which took us about three hours down through the canals and everything, right down to the very southernmost tip. And then we, from there we had to get a motorbike, then took us the last bit right to the end. Uh, was it the most useful use of our time? <laughs> no. <laughs> but Dave, Lauren and myself have now been to the southernmost point of Vietnam, you know. And a lot of the time it's the journey. It's not about where you're actually going, you know. And coming back on that boat, I was like, this really sucks. <laughs> but uh, it was really beautiful. It's, you've got the afternoon light. You're crammed in next to some Vietnamese dude. You're not in the minibus bubble. I mean, that's something else we travel not in Indonesia, but certainly in mainland Southeast Asia, it's so bubble-fied now. You could travel all the way through Thailand, Cambodia and Vietnam and never sit next to a local if you wanted, you know, by taking tourist minibuses and all this kind of crap. Easy to do. A lot of people do it. I think it's the worst way to travel. Get the train, get the local buses, stay off the aeroplanes, get a local ferry, all of that kind of stuff. Sure, sometimes it's a pain in the ass, or it's going to take forever or whatever, but this is the kind of thing that you really remember. And like when people ask me, you know, I've been traveling here for so long, what's some really memorable things? It's always going to be the transition from one place to another. It's very rarely like the actual place. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's the stuff that really sticks with you. What kind of tools are you using? Do you have a smartphone when you're in Vietnam and pulling up Travelfish and TripAdvisor? So I'm curious about the tools that you use while you travel, number one. And number two, that's an awesome itinerary. I would love to do that. I'm curious, what kind of reading? Because if people know they're going eight weeks in advance, what books would you read before you would go on that itinerary? First with tools, if I'm working, then I take my laptop and my phone. That's all. I don't take an iPad or anything like that. Something I've learned through this trip, I've got the new MacBook Pro, the Retina one, which doesn't have a CD-ROM in them. And what, of course, what I realised is you're stuck with whatever movies you've got on them. And I really like Batman. And <laughs> on the last three weeks, I watched the Batman films about ten times each. If I never see Batman again, 
That's cool with me. You, so you think because on they, the Southeast Asia Trail, there's these shops that sell the CD. Sell the CD ROM, but I can't put the CD into it. I yeah. didn't have enough internet to download the movie. <laughs> and I mean, by myself, I'm fasting. It's not like I'm out boozing. I want to watch a flick. It's like Christ, not Batman again, you know. But so that was something. But the phone is yeah very vital for me. I don't want it to sound ridiculous, but I've been just about everywhere here, so I don't tend to use TripAdvisor or even Travel Fish or anything because I've already been to most places so yeah. Yeah, I'm already fairly familiar like when I went to Kopangan I knew where I wanted to go I knew where I wanted to stay like, even though I hadn't been there for five years the places were still the same but for others who are coming up buy a guidebook absolutely I mean everyone keeps saying the guidebooks are dying blah 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 getting a guidebook for the middle bit for the destination stuff is arguably a waste of time now but what you need a guidebook for is the front and the back of the book. You need the front for the history and culture and food and all that kind of stuff. The back for the nuts and bolts. So like visa regulations, flights, how the train system works, how the bus system works, all that kind of stuff. The back bit you can find online. Like We have good information for that side on Travelfish, for example. But we don't have detailed history write-up or you know, culture shock kind of stuff. This is the stuff that people aren't reading. I'm on the fast and I'm talking to other travellers there and and I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, we're going to go elephant riding. We want to go and see the long necks. You know, we want to go and pat a tiger, you know? And it's like, no, 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 you know? (laughs) This is why you don't do these things, you know? But they don't know because they're not reading their guidebook anymore because they're relying on internet websites like ours, although we tell people not to pat a tiger, but (laughs) there's no money to be made in getting people to read the culture of Thailand, right? Most travel websites are transactional. Like they want you to book a hotel or buy a flight, order some noodles or whatever. It's interesting that you mentioned how much respect you gained for A Lonely Planet after you tried to write your own book. And I felt very similarly is that a lot of the authors that they select kind of, they have two to three years experience of like sitting in a place and being there and kind of understanding some of the connection between the tourism structure that's coming into the town plus like what's been there yeah. beforehand. And that nexus is really valuable to me. I've always found Lonely Planet to be the best to read after I've been to a place. Because <laughs> yeah. I want to see how they interpreted what I inter- was trying to put together when I was there. Right. There's lots of different publishers. And I mean, within each of those publishers, you're going to have strong authors and you're going to have weak authors. I've got some very close friends who are now or have been in the past writers for, say, Lonely Planet. And some of them are exceptional. You know, I would love to have them come and work for me, for example. Other ones, Lonely Planet's quite welcome to keep them. You know, I mean, you've got very strong writers and people who are really just charlatans who are just slipping through the system. And the problem with that, when you're, you're stuck on like a two-year publishing schedule or whatever, is you don't find out the person was full of crap until the book's been out for a couple of years and someone goes back to update it and they say, well, hang on a second. This guy never came here, which comes back to what I was saying earlier on from our point of view is if you haven't been there, you haven't been there. You know, so if you're reading about something on our side, we have been there in person every single time. And I think that is really crucial. But coming, coming back to what people should read, the front and the back of a guidebook, it doesn't really matter which one it is. You know, whether it's Rough Guides or Lonely Planet, whatever, it doesn't matter. But on that trip, read something about the food. I mean, food's really good online. There's some really good food bloggers, you know, who are doing stuff in in Southeast Asia because the food's great and everyone loves taking photos of food. And you don't have to have a history degree to write about noodles. Maybe it helps, but I mean, (laughs) you don't, it's not an essential part of the writing, you know what I mean? You don't need to endure a massive conflict 
Or exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, conflict's interesting. I mean, you talk about somewhere like Cambodia and like the whole Khmer Rouge period and everything is like, if you don't understand that, you don't understand the country. Even though it's happened so long ago, it's irrelevant. You know, so when I read something from some blogger who was there <laughs> saying, Phnom Penh's really depressing, like I went to this place and there's all bones everywhere. It's like, oh my God, I just don't understand that kind of thing. I mean, there's lots of excellent books that have been written about that period. For that trip, the book I would recommend over anything else is, it's called River of Time by John Swain, who was a, a journalist during the period. And he goes back and forth between Phnom Penh and Saigon. It's a beautiful book, just really captured. It's probably romanticised somewhat, you know, and everyone's sort of got their idea of what it must be like. I mean, you read books, like there's one by Milton Osborne where he's talking about Phnom Penh in the 60s. It's just, you know, oh, my God, I want to move there tomorrow kind of thing, you know, really fabulous. But so reading that kind of stuff, even though it's not relevant so much to today, it's still giving you this background knowledge to... Otherwise, everything is just this superficial veneer of pancakes in the morning and noodles in the afternoon and cheap Chinese beer or, or whatever, you know. And that's... I'm not saying those things aren't an important part of travel, but they're really just a very small part of it, you know. Are there books about Vietnam or Thailand that stick out to you as important ones or interesting ones? Quite American is a standard one, which is pretty good. The Beach. Of course, there's like tons of war literature. There's even some newer things like The Catfish in the Mandala. This is quite famous. Yeah, I haven't haven't read that. I'm reading a book at the moment that that has just come out called Indonesia, etc. And it's an awesome book by a, I think it was Reuters journalist in Jakarta. But she's been here for years on and off. It's called Indonesia, etc. Because in their constitution, there's a line that talks about Indonesia, etc., you know, who has etc. in their <laughs> constitution, you know? A country with 17,000 islands, a lot on the periphery. Yeah. I mean, Indonesia seems like sort of the beast in the region, yeah? I mean, it just seems like most of it's a, a sort of a black hole. Do you feel that way? I mean, in terms a of... black hole in, in In terms way? of, like, information from, you know, Westerners coming to Southeast Asia generally to travel, you just don't hear a lot of people... I know. I don't know why. I think... I mean, I've never been to the Philippines, so I, I can't... When I talk about Southeast Asia in this way, I'm talking about Southeast Asia except for the Philippines. But I think Indonesia is absolutely where it's at, right? Because Thailand is so easy. Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, they're all super easy to travel in. Travelling here, it's an endurance course, you know? (laughs) But it's good. Like, I mean, it's really worth it when you get to wherever you're going, even if it is two and a half days of travel or whatever to get to wherever. And there's just so much here that people just don't go to. I mean, Indonesians are huge travellers. You know, you'll go... Like this place I was telling you about in Sumatra, I mean, there's plenty of Indonesians there. There's just not many foreigners coming through. I mean, partly it's because they've got a really stupid visa rule in here and it's not easy to do a, right, a visa crossing. A 30-day visa, you can get, it takes you 15 days to get anywhere in the country. Exactly, yeah. You can get a two-month visa or there's various other workarounds, but... I mean, for somebody who's just fresh off the boat and never been here, they're going to be arriving on a one- or two-month tourist visa. And in one or two months, you can do Bali, maybe some of Java, and maybe some of one other bit. And that's it. Unless you're, like, it's a military expedition where you're (laughs) trying to bang your way through. It's one of those places where the longer you travel here, the more you think, oh, I just need longer. You know, like, I think somewhere like Burma, okay? So Burma's changing quite quickly... But to go and see the main, the highlights of Burma, if you want to fly, you can do it in a week, 10 days. You know, it's what a lot of people do. They fly in, they go Yangon, Bagan, Mandalay, Inlay. That's it, they're done. They can 
take it off their list. You can't do that here. It's just physically not possible. Funny story, when I was in Thailand recently, I was on the boat going to Kopangan and there were these backpackers sitting next to me and they were behind me and they were talking about the terrible trip they'd had from Bangkok down on the Long Praia bus and they'd stopped for a long time and the bus driver had a toilet break and then they were late for the ferry and this and it was like, get over yourself, you know? <laughs> I mean, are you serious? If you want a hard travel, like if that's sort of one of the things you're looking for in your travel, Indonesia, man, it's, this is it. Let's play a quick fire travel game. Okay. Off the top of my head, I'll give you verses and you select which one and maybe tell us why. So, Bagan or Angkor Wat? Angkor Wat. Why? There's more to it. The ruins are more elaborate and they're sandstone. And so they're, they're carvings. Well, most of Bagan is brick. The stucco that used to cover it is all gone. So it looks spectacular from a distance when you're up on the spire of one of the temples and the sun's coming up and there's a bazillion temples there, which you can't get at Angkor because you've got all the trees. But when you get close to any, any monument, there's exceptions, but most monuments, it's just brick, nothing fancy close up. While in Angkor Wat, you'll get these amazing apsaras and they're all covered in mould and the tree roots in some of the monuments and there's just a much more otherworldly vibe to it. I mean, Bagan is good uh, Angkor Wat is in a class of its own Thai beaches versus Indonesian beaches oh that's a hard one probably Thailand I would say but it's very lime ball <laughs> I think Bali has ignore what all the people say about Bali's beaches being crap I mean you go down to the Bukit Peninsula some of the beaches down there are the best in the world and I'm an Australian so you know I, I'm into beaches my big thing is the sand so if you go to, say, Belangan Beach down the Bukit, yeah. the grains there are perfectly spherical. So it's, it's a very unusual sand. And it's, it's beautiful. Like, it's lovely. It's because of the stone underneath that there's all those semi-round indentations in it. And so the sand gets in these and gets twirled and twirled and twirled. And so where normally it's like a rough grain, there are all these perfect spheres. Minor detail, but I like that. Hanoi versus Saigon. Hanoi. Easy. <laughs> and that's the easiest one. Hanoi is just, I mean, yeah, the weather's shit, but I mean, the, the It's place a tourist is just dream, isn't it? I mean, it kind of just delivers. Yeah. I'd sort of put Luampabang and Hanoi in a similar kind of category. Yeah. Luampabang, like Hoi An, is sort of been Disneylandified. You know, it's most of, a lot of the houses in the old part are now like, you'll get a croissant and the cafes and stuff, where, yeah, okay, a lot of old Hanoi is like shopfront travel agents and all that kind of stuff. But it's still very much a Vietnamese part of town, you know? And Hanoi's gorgeous, yeah. When I was there a while ago, I did a walking tour. It was quite sad, actually. It was a, a walking tour to see what was left of the colonial architecture in the old quarter. And so the walk had a... It was like a two-page fold-out thing. And about half of the buildings that were on the walk weren't there anymore. Like, they'd have been pulled down for glass and brass hotels. And so the irony is they're tearing down the very buildings people are coming to see to build buildings that these people can stay in. Do you know what I mean? So it was quite sad, really. Hanoi was the first, when I went there in 93, it was just fabulous, you know? We flew there from Vientiane on this ghastly <laughs> piece of crap aeroplane. And on the plane, we got a piece of cake and a beer. That was like the, the meal service. And you landed in Hanoi and it was just mad i loved it yeah hanoi is a really special place i think eating in thailand versus eating anywhere else in the region we lived in bangkok for seven years and it was the first place that we lived in southeast asia 
And I think the problem with doing that is it doesn't matter where you move after that, the food isn't as good. <laughs> I think it's the number one thing that I hate about living in, in Bali is that there's no good Thai food here. I know you've recommended this place down the bucket, but like that's an hour and a half away. I'm not going to go that far for noodles. Yeah, I really miss Thai food. I found one place with good Thai food. Unfortunately, it's in Ubud. Yeah, forget it. Um, (laughs) Rather go to Bangkok. But then a very close second is Vietnam. I mean, the two of them, they're just two peas in a pod. You can't not have a great meal there, I think, as long as you're eating local. It's all fresh. They make it right there on the spot. All right. So finally, what's the best visa in the region? Cambodia. Cambodia. And what's, what's going on there? Is that just 30 bucks at the border and hang out as long as you want? They've just changed the fees. I've got to update that on Travelfish, actually. But they've just increased the fee, but it's still... You go in on the business visas, and then you can extend that for a year, and you're done and dusted. It's very straightforward. Is it shady to extend the Indonesian business visa for a year without leaving? Yes. Yeah. You don't recommend that? The visa rules here are complicated, and it always pays to talk to a couple of agents to find out what they each think you should be doing. And it's not necessarily going to be the same thing. I did a column about this a little while ago in our newsletter where I said what one of these countries needs to do is come up with a visa that is like a self-employed traveller kind of visa. It can be a little bit expensive, but then you're legit and you're legal and you can stay here. Do countries have an official attitude? So we have a post in our forum that's like basically the, the point of the post is like, has anybody ever been screwed? You know, like, have you ever been busted for working from your laptop? And I've never heard of any story yet. Have you heard any stories? If you read the letter of the law, you're not really supposed to be working from Indonesia. Yeah. But technically, I guess you're working from wherever you're incorporated or... Take Thailand as an example. If you're there on a tourist visa, legally, you're not allowed to volunteer. You're not allowed to do any kind of work. So... By that definition, if you're there as a journalist writing a story, you're not supposed to really be writing that story. We've got a full-time writer in Bangkok, and he's on a media visa, which we arranged. He's completely legal there for a year, and then he just goes through the process of renewing it, and that's all completely above board. But, I mean, for other people who are just working for themselves and not for, I guess, we're like a, a publisher, I guess. Yeah, it's difficult. There's not a visa designed for them. Yeah. But, in the same breath... If a Thai wants to go to Australia and work, they're way worse off. So, I mean, as much as everyone sort of complains about it a bit or they come here and complain about the the internet speed or whatever, get over yourself, quit whining. I mean, in the scheme of things, it's still quite a lot easier for us to come here than for people here to go to where we're from. I'm a guest. They're the rule. I don't particularly like the rules. I think it would be great if there was a rule here, like some kind of traveller visa, long-term traveller visa, where, I don't know, you paid whatever, 100 bucks a month or something like that, and then you were completely legit. And as long as you weren't employing people here or something like that, you could do whatever you wanted, I'd sign up for that. You know, I think I don't really have any problem with that kind of idea. And I think a lot of people want to be legal, but there's not really something there. They they're not starting a business. I mean, to start a business, you have to have local partners and all that kind of stuff. And they're not. They're really like a remote worker for a, a company somewhere else in a different country. You know? So the media visa worked for us, for David in Thailand, but there's not an equivalent in some of the other countries. business 
in a little bit. I'm curious about Travel Fish because I've been a user of sorts for many, many years. Yeah. And now I'm becoming a power user as well of Agoda and I have like an account with them and points and TripAdvisor I use on my phone. In fact, one of my favorite hobbies when I'm bored is I like to lay in bed and read the negative TripAdvisor reviews of places. <laughs> I come across your site a lot when I'm Googling for more in-depth information. Like I found my favorite massage place here because of All your right. site. I identified that I could not get a Thai visa in time here because of your site. Yeah. How has TripAdvisor and Agoda affected your business and the travel industry as a whole? And sites like that, I guess peer reviews, because you're reviewing guest houses. Yeah. How have those reviews fared given the user-generated reviews on sites like Agoda? It depends on the destination. So for sites like Agoda, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, Booking.com they're all picking the low-hanging fruit. Agoda and Booking, they're like online travel agents. So if you can't book the place, then they're not interested in listing it. So when we first started the business, even though we hadn't figured out that this would actually be a good idea, the initial approach was that if a place cost more than $20 a night, we didn't list it. <laughs> that was madness. Then we wanted to list everywhere. So at one stage, we listed over 200 places to stay on Kalsan Road, right? Which is completely insane. Right. It was a stupid thing to do from a research point of view, and it was impossible to keep up to date. And giving someone a list of 200 places to stay is not useful at all. It's like giving them a phone book. But what it meant was that we were the only website in the universe that had a detailed review and photograph of old Joe Shanty's guest house on the back blocks of whatever, Chokmayom. So if someone was Googling for that obscure guest house, we'd invariably be number one. So we got, in the early days, a lot of our traffic was for obscure places that nobody else covered. We got a researcher, Don, and he did a research trip through Laos for us, and he covered everything. Like, he went everywhere, places that no one in their right mind would ever go to, but we covered them. So what it meant was that we were getting all this traffic into places that no one else covered, so we were number one. So that was really good from a traffic point of view, but there's absolutely zero ways of making money out of it. I mean, okay, you can have some AdSense ads on or something like that, but you're not going to get reservations. Over time, TripAdvisor has eaten up a lot of these more obscure places. You'll see some of it on Wiki and stuff as well, some other publications. Sometimes I read something and I'm, I'm like, I know I read that somewhere else, you know? And it will be uncannily like what we have and someone has taken it and rewritten it and on-sold it to somebody else. There's a, a couple of magazines that do it and that kind of thing. Let's talk about monetization before we get into the content. Mm -hmm. So what are the ways in which you're monetizing your content currently? You have the Agoda, we have, uh, cookie, they cook you for 60 days or whatever. And then yeah, Agoda, they've changed it again. So I think it's a 30-day cookie now, I can't remember. So we have that. We have general ad stuff, which we most, we have, and these are direct, Google ads or do you... Yeah, we use AdSense. We've done direct advertising in the past, but just occasionally, primarily with AirAsia. And then we do affiliates with World Nomads for travel insurance. They're like the main bucket. You used to sell guidebooks too, yeah? Yeah, we used to sell PDF guides. And I've, we, I've bought and a few used of them to, actually. Right. And well, it was interesting because when we were doing those, and then when Michael, the iPhone app developer, got in touch... And he said, let's do apps. Apps were much more sexy then, you know? <laughs> it was like, well, we're doing this with the PDFs or we can do the iPhone apps. But I just didn't have the time to do both. And so we said, okay, we'll stop doing the PDFs and we'll start doing the iPhone apps. That was definitely a mistake. We still keep on thinking about getting back into doing the PDFs and everything, but 
we just haven't got around to it. We're working on some big changes on the site at the moment and maybe that will be a part of it, we're still not sure. But primarily it's hotels, ads and world nomads. For a perspective on this, you mentioned that you were number two on the Australian app store for travel yep. and it wasn't viable even to pay a developer. Our, our Bali app was at the time about $2 a pop from memory, maybe two ninety nine. I can't remember now. And to be number two, you were doing 10 to 15 sales a day. Incredible. So that's not a lot when you're looking at what you can earn, say, through hotel commissions. It just wasn't worth it. I'm assuming you don't share revenue figures, but can you give your like staff for an idea of what the scale is of the company? We have Sam and me here. Then we have David, who's full-time in Bangkok. Vin, who's half-time in Saigon. These are writers. Yeah, these are writers editorial. Yeah. And then 14 or 15 freelance, we call them correspondents, who file once or twice a week from wherever they live in the region. Why did Travelfish win? Like, why did it work? There's so many companies that were similar. I don't know that we won. I mean, there's plenty of scope. You survived. That's su- winning. I think survived <laughs> is a better, is a, seriously, is a better way to put it. And I think if somebody came along with a huge bucket of money, they could do it much better than us. You know, yeah. I'm not from a business background. You know, I've got an arts degree. We were patient and we grew within our means. You know, we borrowed about five grand off my parents right back in the beginning, what we spent that on. And, uh, and then we've just sort of grown as we've been able to, you know. Let me close this out. I think a lot of people in our community identify with the kind of, I'm a business person that didn't really think business was cool. Uh, right. I didn't identify with that because... I never wanted to be a cigar smoker in a suit in the corner office. I wanted to be out of the script, doing right. something cool. And you kind of monetized something that was your passion, which yeah. a lot of people say can be a problem. You know, don't be a cook if you love cooking. And I'm curious as to like, what are the business challenges that come up for you as someone who doesn't primarily identify as a business person? Certainly you're a business entrepreneur now. <laughs> yeah, Congrats. by accident. Yeah, by accident. Like I said, I'm, I'm not from a business background. I don't bullshit. We try now for me to, to meet all the writers when we employ them. So when I was in Thailand, we took two, two new writers on it. made a point of meeting both of them. And I think that's important. I'm putting my trust in them. I think it's important to keep things on a personal kind of a level. Do you know what I mean? The business has reached a point where it's a good going concern, right? It supports me and my family and supports a team of writers. We're paying them more year in year out which is what i want but now we're at this point where really to grow the business much bigger it needs to be a lot bigger and take more of my time and sam's time and everybody else's time i don't know that i want to have this enormous business you know years ago we were contacted by somebody an investor and he wanted to make it a, a global business and i'm like no i don't want to do that you know it was very flippant back but i was i was like why will i want to write about i don't know anything about south america you know i can't speak with any credibility about south america but as long as we stay just in this one region i'm in a comfortable space but at the moment we're really spinning wheels you know so two final questions one why dot org and not dot com Okay. I need to know the story. Somebody else has the .com. And then we offered them quite a bit of money a while ago, a few years ago. It was about 15 grand, 12 grand, something like that. And they never even responded. It's not a bad branding move, really, at the end of the well, day. Yeah. It's like you care. You yeah, know? I know. But the guy with the .com has a, a site that makes it look like a travel site. Lovely. So you get sucked into all these ads. It's a real bullshit experience. 
But we were just contacted by someone last week who has a .NET and he wants $500 for it. So uh, I've got to get back to you. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay, so final question then. Yeah. You've got a one-way ticket to adventure and you have to step your first foot in Southeast Asia. Is it Kosan Road or Famulao? I've got a soft spot for Kalsan, I have to say. People love to write it off, but it's just, it's so tragic that <laughs> I think you can't understand the backpacker scene in Southeast Asia if you haven't been to Kalsan. And I think you've got to start there. We'll leave it at that. All Stuart right. McDonald from uh, yeah. travelfish.org. Thank you. stuck around now you're a real travel nerd and i hope you enjoyed hearing from Stuart just as much as uh, i did the notes to this one all the recommended reading links and everything that we brought up in the conversation will be at tropicalmba.com slash travelfish and we'll see you next thursday morning 8 a.m eastern standard time Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.